Hello, Mage fans. This is Adam Simpson for Mage the Podcast, the podcast about all things Mage the Ascension. And today I'm very pleased to be joined by a guest that I've been trying to contact for some time, and that is Paul Strack. You may have heard my pleas on uh, previous episodes asking for Paul Strack to contact us if he's out there, and he was out there. He let me know that he'd be happy to speak to Mage fans about his experience writing for and playing the game. And so I'm just uh, very pleased to have him on our episode today. Paul Strack, you there? Yes. Hey, we're, we're so glad to have you on the episode today. Now, the name of Paul Strack is a name that some of our listeners may not be familiar with, so I wanted to uh, just take this opportunity to give an introduction. I said that Paul Strack has written for Mage. He's not uh, published in the uh, White Wolf books, but he was a very active part of the 90s online community for World of Darkness games, and he wasn't just a fan for Mage. He was also very active in the online communities for uh, Vampire the Masquerade and uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse. And uh, he was probably uh, also active in uh, Changeling, The Dreaming, and uh, Wraith the Oblivion once those games were, were out. Uh, I think that was a little closer to the late 90s, and those communities got uh, got going. Uh, now, a lot of people have heard the name of Anders Mage Page, and Anders Sonberg was, uh, was quite popular in the mid-90s uh, with his uh, pieces for Mage the Ascension. And when I was putting together Anders Mage Page 2.0, I was editing pieces not just by Anders Sonberg, but also by Paul Strack and uh, a few other uh, prolific writers of that time. Now, uh, back in the mid-90s, uh, myself and a lot of others were always eager to see the next piece put up by Anders Sonberg. And so uh, one might ask, who was Anders uh, waiting to see the next piece from? And the answer is Paul Strack. Paul Strack did a number of pieces back in the mid and late 90s that uh, Anders Sonberg praised very highly. He was very pleased to feature them on Anders' Mage page. Some of them he liked so much that he was writing sort of uh, sequels or, or additional add-on pieces uh, just because he wanted to keep running with an idea that, that Paul brought up. So, uh, Paul, tell us just a little bit about uh, back in the mid-90s when the online community was new, World of Darkness was was new, and you were a part of it. Right. So most of my work in that particular time period, there are a couple news groups back then that were quite popular. There was a general purpose uh, World of Darkness news group, and then there was a Vampire the Masquerade news group. I mostly participated in the World of Darkness news group because my interests in the world of darkness were quite broad. Like you mentioned earlier, I did something more or less for, I wrote material for each of the major five games that were put out at the time, uh, Vampire, Werewolf, Mage, uh, Changeling, and Wraith. And uh, I ended up being not really the moderator because these groups didn't have moderators, but I ended up being uh, the person who maintained the frequently asked question fact for the world of darkness news group. To be perfectly honest, I can't remember the guy who was managing it before me. I think it's in the actual fact itself, but he handed it off to me. So I maintained a lot of basic um, information about those for, for the new group, news groups because that was the medium that a lot of us participated in back in the late 90s. We're talking about sort of very early days of the internets. There, no, there were not a lot of – the internet was not yet as commercialized as it is now. Most of the stuff that people put up on the internet was fan-based material. I mean, even the World of Darkness website itself was kind of crude back in those days. So a lot of the information that people were using to communicate were through these news groups and through their own websites that they built themselves. And there were a lot of us back then. I, I'm not surprised that people don't really remember my name because it was 20 years ago. And to be 
perfectly fair other than Anders. I don't really remember anybody else's name either just because it was quite a while ago. Yeah, and a lot of people also were uh, posting their pieces online under pseudonyms, and so uh, a lot of them I, I simply don't know how to contact these days. That is true. Some people cared a great deal about their anonymity. Uh, I didn't really care so much about it, to be perfectly honest. I always posted under my own name, and I've done that since then. Uh, I feel like it's important to have kind of a public face on the Internet, but I can, I can understand people who want to preserve their anonymity because I did actually get in trouble with my academic advisor back then for spending so much time on these news groups as opposed to sitting down and writing my dissertation. So there's kind of a reason sometimes people want to be anonymous. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess I can certainly respect that. But um, now I, w looking through the pieces that you wrote for Mage uh, and get preparing for this interview, I was also doing some uh, searching around online and reading some of the pieces that you've done for, for other World of Darkness games, it seems like you were one of the, the very few uh, early uh, educators among the uh, fan community. There were a lot of people who would get excited about a certain topic or a certain idea or disagree with how something was presented in the published White Wolf books, and so they would put their own piece online. But you were one of the very few people who was saying, um, hey, I, I can see some, some misunderstandings here, some disagreements, and some of these people are approaching this stuff with an imperfect knowledge, and so I want to just round up all the facts and then give people an introduction to a, a broad topic so they like understand how the world of darkness fits together, what's there, what's not there, and at least from that point they can say okay now that i understand it i know how i want to alter it or uh, what parts i want to add to uh, for example you put up the the large piece called the umbra which uh, may not have been written specifically for mage but it was featured on anders mage page and in that you wrote a somewhat lengthy uh, for that time piece on how the umbra was uh, entered what the different parts of it were, how a person would travel between this part and that part, and the general sorts of things they could expect to uh, to find there. And so I, I broke that up into different pieces for Anders Mage Page 2.0, but uh, I noted that when it was a part of Anders Mage Page back in the 90s, uh, Anders himself uh, introduced it with this note that this is an excellent explanation of the Umbra, which... Uh, Back in those days, Anders was was rather sparing with his praise, and so I could tell that uh, uh, really got his attention. So would you well, say you, you were something of an educator back then? My approach to the material was sort of a side effect of the way that, that White Wolf was originally approaching the game line when they first started publishing things. Uh, it, it's quite, quite a while ago, but uh, when White Wolf first started publishing their game lines, they were nominally in the same universe, but the way that the, all the first edition books were written, they were designed to be independent games. So they were kind of in the same world, but kind of not in the same world, just because White Wolf didn't want to box themselves in to providing a coherent rule set. They didn't want to make the individual games weaker by trying to make them all fit together, which is a d d design decision that I can kind of understand why they went about doing it. But... A lot of people, myself included, even for the early iterations of the game, were interested in the entire world, entire world, the entire universe, and how it all fit together, even though White Wolf itself wasn't really addressing those issues at that time. So a lot of my work on the early version of the game was, was trying to figure out, okay, you got werewolves, you got mages, you got vampires, they all kind of exist in the same world, how would they really fit together? So the, the work that you specifically cited, the, the Umbra book, what I did basically is I took the material in the different game lines and I tried to figure out 
how could this be put together into a coherent whole? How could we take like the presentation of the Umbra that was in the werewolf books and the presentation of the Umbra that was in the mage books and the presentation of the Umbra that was in the wraith books and, and put them into a single coherent system. Now, you know, part of the reason why people may not be aware of this work is, you know, later on, White Wolf actually got uh, a little more rigorous about saying, oh, these really are part of the same world. How do these all fit together? So in some respects, some of the work that I did was superseded because White Wolf themselves eventually started treating their game line a little differently as part of one single uh, uh, coherent game world. And that's certainly something that they definitely did with, you know, the World of Darkness 2.0 where they, from the very beginning, they say, no, these are really all part of the same thing. Yeah, that's uh, what is uh, often called the new world of darkness as yeah. uh, compared to the classic world of darkness, which is uh, Mage the Ascension and Vampire the Masquerade, etc., fit into classic world of darkness. That's that's a topic uh, that I'm looking forward to uh, discussing a little later in this episode. But for now, I wanted to also mention two pieces that uh, were later put onto Anders' Mage page called Demographics in Mage. And the second one, written just a month later, was called Demographics in Mage 2. Uh, I mentioned these pieces specifically because as I was um, doing some online searching and trying to find a way to contact uh, Paul Strack uh, before I, I eventually did get in touch with him, I noticed that once Anders' Mage page went down somewhere in 1999 or 2000, there were a lot of people who were specifically asking for Demographics in Mage. They, they wanted these articles. They were saying, look, it used to be here. I can't find it now. I, I want to read this. I, someone told me about it or I read it you know, a while back. And now I'm running a Mage Chronicle and I, I really want this, this uh, article so I can sort of put it all together and see how I'm going to, to uh, get a big picture uh, view of this setting. In Demographics in Mage articles, uh, first and second, Paul did a, a very good job of presenting uh, this idea of a mage uh, mystical community that spanned the globe. Uh, how many are there? And if you have more or less, how is that going to affect this mystic society? How are they going to interact with each other if there's uh, a whole bunch in a given city or if there's very few mages? And he went on from there to talk about how the different factions would be affected by having more or, or fewer numbers and a number of other related ideas. It was just, a, I thought, a, a brilliant piece and it has helped uh, over the years a lot of people get a handle on the mage setting as a whole so that they can then have a sort of a stepping off point to say, okay, now that I understand it, I want to change it like this, or I'm going to set up my chronicle like this. So have you also been requested uh, a lot of times for these demographics articles? Uh, it's kind of interesting that you bring this stuff up. I, the, the, the interest in the demographic articles is something that, that happened more or less kind of I, as I, I slid out of the community and was no longer an active participant in it. The original, my, my original motivation for writing the demographic articles, and I actually ended up writing them for all the game lines, not just Mage, but also Vampire, Werewolf, Changeling, and so forth. Uh, I wrote those articles, again, to sort of fill what I thought was a gap in uh, White Wolf's own writing of the material. So White Wolf themselves were often fairly vague about exactly how many supernatural creatures existed in their game world. And if you want to build a coherent picture of how everything fit together, having a general idea of exactly how many supernatural creatures existed out there was kind of important. Now, in fairness to White Wolf, I kind of understand why they were vague about these topics. Again, from a design perspective, if you're talking about supernatural creatures within your world and you want people to have some degree of flexibility on how they actually 
portray their individual game worlds being a little vague on how many vampires there are is actually a good thing because people wanted to have like a, a city that was just chock full of vampires versus people wanted to have a city where vampires were fairly rare. Same for mages. Uh, they, they, if you, if you're vague in your rule books about exactly how many creatures there are, people can have different game worlds that, with different perspectives and different populations without necessarily being contradicted by the gaming material itself. Having mm-hmm. said that, uh, I actually wanted to get an idea of exactly how many creatures there were and what the ramifications of the population would be. So I wrote those demographic articles not as a way of sort of defining what I thought was an authoritative list of those populations, but providing sort of one possible scenario that was worked out with ramifications for the ramifications explored for how many of those people there were. The mages stuff in particular, when I wrote the demographic articles for mage, one of the issues that I had with the original portrayal in the mage rules is the way the rules were written theoretically the probability of becoming a an awakened being was more or less kind of at random across the human population across the entire globe but the mage rules themselves were very sort of eurocentric in their portrayal of awakened beings so you had like the dream speakers which sort of represented more or less the entirety of the thoroughbred population, and then you had the Akashic Brotherhood that sort of represented the Asian point of view. But then, more or less, everything else was Eurocentric. So when I wrote the demographic articles, I wanted to think, okay, if if mages are are, are roughly evenly distributed around the entire world, what does that mean? And so I actually tried to come up with a worldview that portrayed mages in cultures other than uh, Western cultures and how they would fit together. Now, again, this is something that White Wolf themselves did in a little bit more detail in later game lines, but the, I, I wrote my stuff before they wrote their stuff. I, I was kind of saying, I don't think they based their material on mine, but I, I was writing what I thought was a gap, writing to fill a gap that existed in, in the early game lines. Yeah, reading your material and then reading the White Wolf books and, and looking at when they were written, I, I actually sometimes wondered if uh, there weren't some ideas uh, or, or just general topics that they sort of borrowed from some of your pieces, because uh, not long after, uh, they started to cover a lot of these things. But uh, from the record we have, it looks like you were one of the few trailblazers who was, was moving ahead into territory that they later covered in published works. Well, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't the only person talking about it. I just happened to be the only person that sort of wrote things down into an article that happened to survive. If you go back, if you actually look at the old archives, and I'm not recommending people do because they're quite extensive, but a lot of people talked about this stuff. There were, there were, this was a hot topic of conversation back in the early days of the White Wolf game as, you know, how many vampires would there reasonably be? What would, how many major they are? What impact would they would have on society? There were long conversations about this. So I wasn't the only person actually talking about it. It just so happens that my material, since I actually took the end results of my thought and put them into articles, my material happens to be just what happens to survive. And I don't actually think White Wolf copied from me. I think they were thinking about the same things. And if you sort of think through things logically, it's not unreasonable that they came up with things that vaguely resemble what I came up with, just because, you know, there's only so many ways that the topic can be approached. So I wouldn't actually claim that. I, I think it actually would be, it's pretty unlikely that White Wolf was pirating for me or something like that. I'm not going to be that arrogant. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, probably not. But uh, I I do appreciate the work you did to sort of solidify these discussions because, uh, you know, when I was putting together Anders Mage Page 2.0, I was digging through a number of those uh, archives. And, yeah, it it can be 
a little tedious to get through, you know, 20 different uh, posts on a given topic, uh, whereas you would write an article and sort of put everything together in a very readable, understandable form. Demographics and Mage, I, I thought was was quite useful for the early Mage community because there were a lot of people that would read the game books and there were a lot of things left vague uh, deliberately in those game books so that uh, individual storytellers would have the freedom to set up their chronicle and their chronicle setting in any way that they liked, which I, I certainly agree with. But uh, what I think a lot of people weren't understanding was that different people got different impressions from reading these books. You know, one person would say, oh, there must be all kinds of mages you know, rubbing elbows in New York City. And then the next person would say, wow, I'll bet there's only three or four mages in all of New York City. And it's fine to have these uh, assumptions for your own uh, chronicles. But when people got together and started playing with each other or uh, having online discussions, I think there were some some unfortunate misunderstandings where some person would, would think it was one way and another person another way. And so your articles kind of laid it down and said, look, th this is the scale we can slide across and here's how it looks at this end and here's how it looks in the middle and here's how it looks at the other end. And I think that informed a lot of people's understanding of World of Darkness where they started saying, oh, well, I was making assumption A, but my friend was making assumption B. Now we can really talk to each other. Yeah, yeah. Either scenario is fine. You just have to think about the ramifications of your assumption. So if mages are common, that has ramifications. If mages are rare, that has ramifications. You just need to think about what the effect of your assumptions are. And different games can use different sets of assumptions. And they're all fine, but it's worth uh, exploring what the ramifications of your assumptions are. Yeah, I, I just like to lay everything out on the table and say, uh, here's here's the uh, possible assumptions, and here's what we can do with them. I, I just really enjoy articles that, that do that for us. Well, one of the things that was important to me, one of the things I really liked about the World of Darkness books, especially even in their very earliest forms, is they were very compelling in the sense that they had very rich cultures for their supernatural creatures, especially in Mage. You had made traditions that were tied into real-world magical traditions, and they had systems of ethics, and they had histories, and they had personalities, and there were really things that you could engage with. And so one of the things that I tried to address in the demographic articles that I wrote is in order to have a culture, you have to have a certain level of population – so if you're going to have these rich mage cultures, you need to think about how many mages are there, who are they, how are they structured, how are, they, uh, how are the hierarchies arranged, and how is this culture being propagated? Because if there's only like a half a dozen mages associated with a particular tradition in a particular area, that's not really enough people to maintain any kind of cultural continuity. You're not talking about a culture when you only have six people. You're talking like, about a club or like a, a knitting circle, something very small. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the things that I did in the article that I thought I worked fairly well is I cheated by basically saying that the mages themselves were in some ways associated with groups of lesser mages, heads mages, and those groups shared the same kind of ethics and culture of the tradition mages and therefore, they got some degree of cultural continuity, not just from themselves, but from their associations with other less powerful mystical groups that share, shared the same ethical framework or cultural framework as the traditions themselves. 
Yeah, I think a lot of uh, mage fans uh, tend to forget at times about the uh, the hedge wizards or uh, I guess sorcerers as they're sometimes called in the published material and how they have an effect on uh, magical traditions and uh, older societies and cultures in the world of darkness. So it's a topic that uh, would be fun to visit in uh, future podcasts in, uh, in this series. Uh, but for now, I wanted to um, turn the page a bit and take a look at uh, an idea that I'm hearing about more and more now called tiered play. Now, this is a newer term to me, but as I understand it, this is, is generally a new approach to um, World of Darkness games where instead of a player coming to the table for session zero and making a new character um, exactly how it's described in the book and then choosing a um, you know, clan for vampires or tradition for mages or convention, etc. Uh, they simply start out the game as um, a character that has just stepped into, you know, just stepped beyond the veil, just learned about the world of darkness and has not yet chosen a side or doesn't yet have any established um, goals or, or an opponents or, or anything like that. And so I have heard that tiered play is often a preferred method for introducing uh, people who are new to role-playing and new to the world of darkness into a game so that they can slowly, you know, by steps, learn a piece at a time of the, you know, large and, and, and rich, varied world of darkness setting. Uh, but this is not only something that can be tried with people who are new to world of darkness and, and new to role-playing. It's something that can be tried with, with any group. Uh, now, I heard that you were doing something rather similar to tiered play a while back with, with your own players. Could you tell our listeners a bit about that? Yes. So I ran a game back in the mid-90s where uh, the premise of the game was that we were going to play ourselves as characters, as supernatural creatures in the world of darkness, with us exploring the world of darkness as our with the only change in our personalities being that, in addition to being who we were, we were also some form of supernatural creatures. This was a game where we had a mix of supernatural creatures. So we had two players who were playing mages, two players who were playing vampires, and I ended up playing a werewolf. And we rotated the game master duties among us. So I played sometimes and I ran sometimes and we shared that among ourselves. And the way that the game started was... I ran the initial session and I created a divergence point where basically I assumed that a history, the history of the game was the same as the history they had in the real world, except one evening we went out and the, as a group of friends and two of us were attacked by vampires and turned into vampires. Another two of us awoken and then we did some sort of supernatural hang, hand wrangling that ended up with me becoming, becoming a werewolf. And it was a pretty interesting experience. So the way that we built the characters is rather than, you know, sitting down and going through and trying to min-max our characters and make them optimal and build the personality, what we did instead was we said, we're going to build balanced characters that we think are the best representations of ourselves that we could manage. That's kind of how we got around people's egos of like saying, oh, I'm super smart and super strong and so forth. Like, well, you can't do all those things. You got to like, you know, you have to fit your character within the game rules, but try and make it as good a representation of yourself as we can. Which meant that that, that our skill distributions were very different from a normal starting World of Darkness character because we didn't actually have much in the way of combat skills because we as people didn't have any experience with learning how to fight. So we started, you know, with lots of skills in like computers and history because we were college students, basically. 
not the typical distribution of skills. The other thing that made the experience interesting is by creating that divergence point where at a specific point in time in the real world, we split and we went on to live our real lives, but we also had these fictionalized for the fictionalized versions of ourselves that had been turned into supernatural creatures. It was like for a little while we were living two lives. We were living our real life and we were living the game life where our personalities diverged based on our experience in this sort of new supernatural world. So would you say the resulting uh, Chronicle was was quite different from uh, other World of Darkness Chronicles you'd run before that point? Yes. And it was also very illuminating in some ways because we were exploring not just ourselves, but also how we would change if we were forced to experience the things that uh, a typical World of Darkness character goes through. So just to kind of give an example that fits into the tiered play idea, one of the players said, we, we did all get to pick which supernatural race we would end up being. And one of the players said he wanted to be an Akashic mage. So that's how he awakened. But very early on in the campaign, he ran into some technomancers and I presented an argument to him from the technomancers from their point of view saying, here's how we think that the world should work. Here's how things should be organized. We're trying to protect humanity from all these other supernatural races. I came very, very close to persuading him to becoming a technomancer instead of a Kashik brother. It was, <laughs> it was a very gratifying experience. Now, we went back to talk to the other players, and they said, no, no, this is a terrible idea. These guys are all horrible assholes, and you should know that. But um, <laughs> but it, would, it was very effective in terms of like illustrating that these different groups have their own points of view. And from their own points of view, they are behaving in a perfectly reasonable fashion. The other aspect of it is our game characters, even though they originally started off as versions of ourselves, diverged in many ways from every, every player actually had this experience. Their game character ended up being a different person from the real character, just because their life experiences were different. We became, so my character who is a werewolf, I'm very much a pacifist myself. I don't like violence, but my werewolf character ended up becoming extremely aggressive because in that worldview, fighting to the things that we were fighting against were so horrific that it made perfect sense to try and interact with them in, an, in only in violent ways. There was no way to reason with them. Ripping the pieces was a perfectly logical thing to do. So my character ended up becoming an extremely violent person, very different from me is in the real world. The people who played vampires had actually ended up a somewhat being a somewhat depressing experience where they were both fairly nice people able to, but as vampires, they were forced to adopt a lifestyle where they were forced to be secretive, where they were forced to manipulate other people, where they were forced to basically become parasites on society in order to survive and enter the vampiric world of these these intense politics and they became just in order to function as they did within the societies that they were a part of they became much less nice people scheming manipulators and so forth it was illustrated the two mages also ended up diverging one of them was a dream speaker one of them was a cosmic brotherhood and the end result of the game after we played for a couple years was the five of us who were very close friends in real life ended up going in completely direct, different directions of the game, and we all ended up eventually following our own paths. Mm-hmm. It was 
interesting, but also a little bit depressing, but very, very, very much a very rich experience. Well, they call it the world of darkness for a reason. I think if it were real and you were thrust into it, it would probably not be something you would enjoy all that much. But uh, as a fictional game, I think it's a, a much better way to, to take part in it. <laughs> it was extremely compelling. I will say that. Um, even though it didn't have a happy ending, it was a, a very enjoyable experience. Very illuminating. Yeah, if I could focus on the two uh, mage uh, players in this chronicle for a moment, uh, did they quickly join their traditions after they awakened in, in the story, or, or was there some time where they were sort of casting about and trying to figure things out? They were mostly casting about and trying to figure things out. And the interesting thing is sort of the gravitational pull of the different societies for the werewolf characters and the vampire characters was extremely strong. Those characters basically decided that they simply couldn't function without joining their associated societies. But among the mages, that gravitational pull was not actually all that strong. The two players who were playing the mage characters had very strong personalities and very definite ideas about the way the world worked. And they picked traditions that fit their personalities, but they discovered in the context of the game that they could accomplish their goals more or less on their own without necessarily having to interact with their traditions very much. So mm -hmm. we spent probably the least amount of time with the mage traditions just because the people who were playing mage characters were able to meet their goals and do what they needed to do without necessarily drawing on their traditions very much. Okay, so I guess in that way it, it does connect pretty well with the, this concept of tiered play where a uh, character will awaken and then spend some time playing through game sessions where they're an orphan, basically, not, not a member of any group, and just trying to figure out themselves and their new life. And then they're offered a choice to join a tradition, and then how much involvement they have is uh, something they can work out uh, in game sessions instead of uh, before play starts. Yeah, basically what they did was early on they were more interested in being friends with the rest of the group than they were in joining their traditions. They didn't actually join their traditions until fairly late in the game after the group had more or less dissolved and followed its own path. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that uh, it does open up some uh, some new ideas and some possibilities for me. I, I must admit that uh, back in the 90s and early 2000s when I was more active as a uh, mage storyteller, I was kind of taking the default setting uh, mentioned in the books and having my players choose their groups before play started and then giving them, you know, a one-on-one -on -one session to, you know, bring their character up to speed. But uh, tiered play does sound like uh, a lot of fun and, and sounds like it holds a lot more possibilities than just um, educating newbies to the game, but new ways of play, new ways of interacting with the setting. So uh, something I'm going to consider for the future and hopefully our listeners will get some ideas there. Now, the final topic I wanted to discuss today is joining uh, Mage the Ascension with the newer game, Mage the Awakening. Now, in uh, 2005, the new World of Darkness was in full swing, and uh, the classic World of Darkness was much less active. And in the new World of Darkness, five games, and I think even more than that, were put out. There was a, there was a Vampire, there was Werewolf, Mage, uh, Changeling, Wraith. But the setting of those games was was quite different it had no connection to the the setting the the world i guess you could say of the classic world of darkness and now the rules were were quite similar although revised and i've heard many people say streamlined in, in very uh, uh, positive reviews but um i never got my hands on mage the awakening book so i, I really don't know uh, very much about it now i heard that you tried running 
a chronicle that was in the setting of Mage the Ascension, but used the rule system from Mage the Awakening. Is that right? Yes. When when the New World Darkness books were published, they were received with the community by the community with fairly mixed feelings. There were a fair number of people that were uh, loyal to White Wolf as a company and loyal to White Wolf as a brand, and they wanted to. They were willing to sort of do more or less anything that White Wolf took on. But there are quite a num- large number of people that were invested in the game worlds and not the games. And they liked the setting of the previous systems a lot more than they liked the setting of the new systems. And they were unwilling to make that shift and they stuck with the older games. And then there are a bunch of people like myself who are on the fence who like some of the ideas that White Wolf did with the new game lines, but preferred the old settings. The new game lines in terms of game mechanics, I personally feel were a major improvement over the original games. The original games aren't bad, but they are showing some signs of age. Some of the basic game mechanics they did in the original system were a little bit wonky. Not everybody necessarily cares too much about game rules, but some of the the, the way that, that, that difficulties worked in the old World of Darkness where you have a sliding scale of difficulty and a fixed dice pool meant that weird things happen at the margin when the difficulty gets really high or the difficulty gets really low, the rules kind of break down and don't function as well. And they resolved that basic mechanic in the new world of darkness by having a fixed difficulty. The difficulty was always eight. And then they had this rule where tens exploded like they did in the old world of darkness, where if you got a 10, you got to reroll. And by making that change and sort of simplifying the mechanics that made the system a lot more stable and more predictable, you didn't get the same kind of degenerate behavior at the margins that you did in the old World of Darkness. This is not to say that the new system is perfect, but in that respect, it was an improvement over the old one. It also made the rules easier to understand because if you just crunch the numbers a little bit, you can say that if you have a success on uh, an eight or higher and tens explode, That basically means you can expect to have one success every three dice, and it made it easier to kind of guess. If I'm rolling, say, nine dice, that means I can expect to get roughly three successes. I might get a little more, I might get a little less, but that's about how many I'm going to get. And since the system is more predictable, it made it easier to build rules around the core system that were more stable uh, and straightforward. In terms of Mage the Awakening itself, the game mechanics in Awakening versus Ascension, the basic magic system is similar enough to the old magic system that translation is not that bad. They have 10 spheres of magic rather than nine spheres of magic, but they basically just took the sphere of entropy and split it in two into uh, death and uh, fate. And uh, other than that, the, the basic premise of the magic system is very similar. You have improvised magic still, you have the magical spears, you have uh, scores that were very much like Arte, and basic premise of the system, translating with, between the two is not very difficult because you have the same basic scope of magic. Oh, and you also have Paradox as well. Paradox exists in both the old system and the new system. Okay, so strong similarities there, but the settings, uh, I heard, were quite different. No, so yeah, so the settings were completely different, and to be perfectly honest... The setting in the new vampire game is okay. The setting in the new werewolf game is okay. I prefer the old ones, but they're not bad. But the setting in the new mage game was just 
bog standard boring, just really, really dull, <laughs> especially compared to the old setting. I, the, the, in terms of this, it's interesting. In, in, in Mage of the Awakening, in terms of the new game line, that is a, this, the book, rule book where I like the rules the most and I like the setting the least. As soon as I, I, I bought the game book, I was like, this, this is boring. I don't like the way that they set the world up. But the, ma- the magic rules themselves, I liked an awful lot. So using the new rule book to run the old setting occurred to me almost as soon as I, I, I bought the book. So, so how did that work out? I mean, did, did you hit some roadblocks or was there something really hard about that or did it just no, it wasn't, it, wasn't a, it wasn't especially difficult. Like I said, there's enough similarities in the premise of the magic system that you could basically take the old rule book and just sort of just file off the names in the, the new setting and just map things to the old setting without too much difficulty. I think what we ended up doing was we made the Euthanatos use the Death Sphere and we assigned the Fate Sphere to the hollow ones rather than making them be full orphans just so that we had you know some group associated with each of the 10 spheres but other than that that basically worked more or less with very minimalistic changes the other thing about the new rule system is it fills what some people consider to be it solves what some people consider to be a problem with the old rules there are a bunch of people that really, really like the immense flexibility of the rule, old rules, the fact that almost all magic is improvised, and the fact that you can basically do anything that you can think of so long as it fits in the context of the fears that you have. And there's essentially no safety net in the rules for you to, to that, that limit you in what you can accomplish. And a lot of players find that to be extremely rewarding, but there are another group of players that find that to be paralyzing, that it puts too much burden on the players to be creative in the moment. And they, you know, when they're, when they're in a, in a dangerous situation and they're forced to invent a spell on the fly, they find that to be difficult and painful. And one of the things that they did in the awakening rules versus the ascension rules is they actually sat down and came up with a robust and interesting set of rules for rotes, which are pre-planned spells, which existed in the old rules, but didn't really have any particular mechanical effect. Whereas in the new rules, if your mage actually sat down and practiced a particular magical effect, then they would become better at that magical effect and they could use it more effectively than they could their improvised magic. So in the rules mechanics, there's an actual advantage to using rotes over using, I guess, dynamic magic. Yes, yeah, and it's it's a fairly significant advantage. It's, it's an advantage that is significant enough that building a character that mostly focused on rotes as opposed to improvised magic is something that's that's both viable and effective. Whereas in the old rules, you know, your rotes didn't really have much of a meaning at all, to be honest. Okay. At this point, I'd just like to interject uh, one thing for our listeners. Uh, there is a book out by uh, Onyx Path Publishing, and it's called Mage Translation Guide, and it specifically addresses the topic of taking Mage the Ascension, Mage the Awakening, and either mixing them or using one setting with the other's uh, rules set up. Uh, you can get that as a $5 PDF download or a $10 uh, paperback book uh, that you can have shipped to you. And uh, if, if this topic interests you, that book is recommended. But uh, but please continue. Yeah, so yeah, it's another example of White Wolf basically at some point codifying the things that the fans were already doing. <laughs> <laughs> but 
know, I'm not to say that the book, actually, I think the book, that particular book is quite good. And they ended up doing a lot of the same things that, that the fans are doing, because like I said, it, there's only so many, many way to do things. And if you follow the logic of how to actually merge the two game worlds, that the fact that the, the White Wolf rules ended up resembling what the fans were already doing is because there's a fairly straightforward, logical way to do it. It was already kind of, even though the original game book didn't actually have it as a, as a factor, it was fairly obvious even from the beginning how to make these translations. Although I think the PDF that you just mentioned does actually do a nice job of doing a lot of the work for you of how to map the traditions of the spheres. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, it sounds like you didn't have a lot of, of trouble uh, connecting the rule set of Awakening with the setting of Ascension. When, once you were running the game, how was it? What, what, how was it? Was it better or, or easier in well, some way? I think it's better, but again, it depends on the kinds of players that you have. The players that I have actually liked having the more robust, detailed rule set that they could lean on in order to figure out how the world works, as opposed to the very open-ended loosey-goosey rules of the original mage rules. And it, it depends on the kind of players you have. If you have players that want that freedom and creativity to do more or less whatever they can think of in the moment, then maybe the old rules will work better. If you have a group of players that want uh, a stronger foundation, a more detailed rule set, so that they don't necessarily have to be quite so creative in the moment, that they can actually lean on the roads that their characters have and use those rather than having to make up something on the fly, then that, that, that system might work better for your particular group. Yeah, I can see one uh, possibility as I uh, hear you describe this. Uh, there's in the, the general, in at least in the U.S. now, and, and probably a lot of other places as well, there's a, a large interest now in uh, fantasy role-playing, uh, Dungeons and & Dragons and, and similar games. A lot of people are uh, entering the role-playing, a tabletop role-playing hobby for the first time, not knowing anything about really any games. And after getting a little bit of experience with these fantasy role-playing games, they're starting to branch out and, and look at some other things. And so I could see uh, a common situation where there'd be a number of people who just got started with... Dungeons and Dragons and the very you know codified spell lists and detailed specific uh, rules, and then wanting to branch out into something like Mage and thinking, oh wow, you know what, what have I stepped into? I'm a bit confused now. But if you can offer them this option of saying, hey, look, uh, can rely on um, more detailed rules, more codified rules. There's an advantage to putting these specific rotes on your character sheet that you can fall back on, uh, that could be a nice introduction. And, and for some people, that would be a nice intermediary step before they step into the, the full-blown uh, Mage 20 or, or Mage 2nd Edition and, and really experience a more hands-on session where they can really grapple with the rules and don't have to rely on a hard and fast uh, scaffold uh, to support them. Well, the Awakening rules do also have improvised magic, too. So the nice thing is that the characters start off focusing mainly on the roots, but if they end up in the situation where their roots won't help them, then they can always improvise magic. It's there in the rules. It's yeah. just that they're not forced to do it all the time. Yeah, but it sounds like in the Awakening rule set, the dynamic magic is um, has a little bit less of a mechanical advantage, which at times would make it more dramatic and certainly an excellent addition to a chronicle. But uh, it does sound like it is a bit different from um, from Ascension rules. It is and it isn't. So, it, so I said earlier it's possible to build a character in the Awakening rules 
that is very rote focused and sort of use regularized magic and make that particular type of character effective. But it's also possible to build a character that is focused mainly on improvised magic, just depending upon which set of stats you improve. So if oh. you focus on improvised magic and you put your points into generalized magical abilities and raise up your spheres and so forth, you can actually make a character that is very effective as, a, as an improvised mage as opposed to a mage who has a lot of rotes. The difference being that the characters actually end up being different in the way that they function. A person who focuses on regular rope magic is going to have spells that are safer and more reliable because they generate less paradox, and a character who is focused on improvised magic will have magic that is more flexible and could do more things, and they have fewer limits on their freedom, but then they suck up a lot of paradox, and they're, they're increasing their risk. So you can play both types of characters, and the, and the, uh, the, the improvised magic character in the new rules ends up being not that different from the way mages behaved in their old rules, where their main limiter was not on what they were capable of doing, but on you know how much paradox they generated and how much reality came along to punch them when they pushed things too far. I see. So, so if uh, any of our listeners wanted to try this for themselves, it sounds like uh, all they would need is the Mage the Awakening core book and then uh, possibly Mage the Translation Guide. And those two books added to the Ascension books that they already have are probably enough to, to get going. Yeah, you can pretty much just completely ignore the new setting. <laughs> One of the advantages of the fact that the new setting is so bland is it makes it very, very easy to ignore. It's not really – in the old world of Narctus, the setting was baked into the rules very hard, so extracting the setting from the rules was difficult to do. One of the nice things about the new world of darkness is that the setting and the rules are not so intimately tied together – so rewriting the setting but keeping the rules is, is less difficult to do. So I was just looking up on Drive-Thru RPG and finding that Mage the Awakening 2nd uh, Edition is still available for people. That's listed as being a $20 PDF or a $40 uh, hardcover book. And so together with the $5 PDF for Mage Translation Guide, it, it looks to me like that is all that a person would need to get the full benefit of, of mixing Awakening and Ascension together. Do you think that's all that's needed? Oh, definitely. One of the nice things nice, not-so-nice things about the new system. The fact that the, the new setting is not very interesting and is fairly bland makes it easier to disentangle the rules from the setting than it was in the old system where the rules and the setting were tightly interwoven. So it's actually not difficult at all, especially using the guidelines that White Wolf provided, to completely ignore everything that the Awakening setting and replace it with the Ascension setting without a lot of difficulty at all. The settings chapters in the Maze the Awakening book are actually not all that long. The bulk of the rules are in the magic, and that stuff is that is stuff that you can use more or less with very little modification. Uh, I was just wondering, what about uh, particular cases where they find some uh, talisman or rote from the Ascension rules, and they say, oh, I like this one so much, it's so specific to this group, it'd be great for an NPC. Uh, what, what about translating one of those? That's, again, you know, the, the, it's just a magic system, right? So theoretically, anything is possible. So it's actually, you, you might have to do a little bit of work to translate the old World of Darkness talisman or whatever into the new World of Darkness rules, but you have basically the same magical spheres as you did in the old system, and since the old rules were based on the spheres, it's just a matter of switching from the old spheres to the new spheres. I mean, the old, the old system was basically anything goes, and the new system has enough anything goes in it 
to allow you to, to port over any more or less whatever you want with, without too much difficulty. There's some things in the old rules that don't exist at all in the new rules, like, for example, the virtual web. But there you can basically just steal the old ideas from the old rules and, and port them over to the new rules. Any, okay. any game master that's running Mage the Ascension is going to have to be used to improvising. So <laughs> improvising the context of the new rules shouldn't actually be that much of a stretch. Yeah, for me, that was something I, I always enjoyed about the first and second edition games. But I have spoken with a number of people who liked that less and, and wanted to be able to rely on a, a firmer rule set uh, like you're describing in Awakening. So it, it's great that there are so many options open to people who are enjoying Mage. They can they can really tailor the rule set, the setting, and, and so many other things to be just what they want to present to their players. It, it's really great to have all those choices now. Well, I think that uh, just about wraps up uh, the discussion uh, we've had today. I'm so pleased that Paul Strack could join us on Mage the Podcast to uh, share some of his experience with our listeners. Now, one thing we uh, often do at the end of an episode, Paul, is uh, just to uh, open it up to our guests and ask, uh, are there any uh, projects or or anything you're working on that you'd like our listeners to know about? Perhaps a a website or or some reference you'd like to pass to everyone? Most of the material that I have that I think that is worth promoting and and reading, you've already recorded on your new uh, Anders 2.0 webpage. So I would suggest that people who are interested in my material that they actually go there. Yeah, I remember when I was uh, editing the pieces and finding them and putting them together to build up the uh, Anders MagePage 2.0 site. I really appreciate it whenever I came across a Paul Strack piece because it's like, oh, this doesn't even need any editing. Uh, just a quick scan. I mean, typos are not going to be there. The grammar is going to be perfect. Everything's going to be well explained. It's like, I, I could basically rubber stamp this. It was so nice working on your pieces. <laughs> yeah, when you talked to me about the, the Anders 2.0 page, I went back and reread a lot of that material. It's kind of, uh, it was a nice trip down memory lane for me. It's been like <laughs> years since I looked at most of that material myself. Well, thanks so much for uh, taking some time out of your schedule to speak to our listeners. Wish you well in your gaming and your future career. So everyone, that was Paul Strack uh, sharing some of his time with us. This has been an episode of Mage the Podcast. My name is Adam Simpson, and you can contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or feedback. Let us know what you think of the show. You can subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn. You can also follow us on Twitter. At Mage the Podcast. There are plenty of conversations going on there. Why not join in? This episode of Mage the Podcast was executively produced by Richard Bat Brewster and Ira Grace. If you'd like to become an executive producer and help support the podcast, click the link on today's show notes at magethepodcast.com. You can help support this podcast with a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. $10 a month, $5, or even $1 a month will help. Uh, For example, we'd like to purchase some new gear and software to improve the sound of the show, or maybe even do a show from a convention in the future. Again, if you'd like to become an executive producer and help support the podcast, click the link on today's show notes at magethepodcast.com. Until next time, towards ascension!